turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6. We're going to use that as our text uh, to continue in our um, series on what do you love? I'm going to read in, in just a minute uh, a, a similar, not a similar, one of the verses that I read uh, uh, two weeks ago. But we're going to uh, talk this morning about a very specific application in this idea, this conversation that we're having about what do you love. Have, have you ever done any of the following things? Have you ever made a decision about something you buy uh, based on the impact that it will have, or maybe a reason for buying something that had something other than the product itself. Maybe it was a, a car that you bought based on its impact on the environment. Um, or have you ever uh, decided to shop somewhere uh, based on whether that store aligned with your values or not? Or perhaps supported a group uh, that was addressing a certain issue that you cared about and maybe supported it financially or, or volunteered for that group. I, th I think of Letitia's House and some other groups that we have uh, partnered with and, uh, because they're addressing very significant, important uh, issues. Uh, we're, we're in this mini-series uh, around this question of uh, what do we love? You know, and in our verse, our context is Matthew 6. We've been reading under the heading of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The idea that we can't serve two masters about how our hearts and, and the, the desires of our hearts, our, our loyalties can be conflicted at times. And the example that Jesus is using is God and money. But it's not just God and, and money. Sorry, it's, it's not... It's God, but it's not just money that can pull our uh, attention away from God. There's a lot of things you know, that can pull our attention away from God. So the first week we discussed money and wealth and the pursuit of those things. And, and last week we discussed sports and entertainment and, and more generally uh, entertainment, movies, shows, things like that that can vie for the affections of our hearts and these are various cultural obsessions uh, that we have to deal with living in this world. And today we're going to discuss uh, the, the category of politics, causes, movements, pushes for societal uh, change. And I think culturally, here's, here's a temptation. And, and this is something that I think we all face. We, we all face this temptation to think about the meaning of our life in terms of the impact that we have. Have you ever thought about, is my life counting for something? And then try to think about how do I evaluate whether my life is counting for something and to evaluate the meaning of our life based on the, the difference that we're making or the impact that, that my life is having and how do I measure that impact? How do I know if my life is making a difference? This is something that we give a lot of thought and attention to. I would say obsessing over it at times and it's, it's an important question. It's, it's a significant question. But so much of 
The things that, that the culture values are, are not wrong in themselves. You know, the values of feeling connected with other people, feeling part of something bigger than myself. Isn't that a desire that we all have to, to feel that sense of significance through the connection I have to something larger than me? The, these are diff, um, desires that, that God uses to, to draw us to him and to serve him. And of course, culturally and in our own sinful tendencies can pull us away from that and and, and turn it to other things, other solutions other than God for the answer to that question of significance. And, and so this is the, the terrain of our heart that we're going to be looking at this morning and, and just, just having a discussion about the meaning of our lives and the purposes and why we're here and, and, and wondering what, why has God put us here on this earth? What, what are we here? What, what is the purpose of life? And, and Jesus gives us a helpful uh, analogy in uh, this section under laying up treasures in heaven. And, and it's, it's an analogy that Jesus uses to connect and to help us understand the connection between external things and the internal condition of our soul. And so I'm going to read the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. And this is the words of our Savior, the word of the Lord. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Here's how I would, well, one way to think about what Jesus is saying here is the idea is that you, you are what you look at. You are what you look at or, or the things that you desire define you. This is the idea that we can gather from, from what, what our Savior is teaching us here. You are what you look at. Throughout scripture, the metaphor of the eyes is used to speak of more than just things that we look at. It's, it, it speaks to the, the desires of our hearts, our, our deepest longings, which, which Jesus is saying, those desires in your heart, they, they define the condition of your soul. And, and all throughout scripture, there's encouragement about us for us to think about what we are looking at. Uh, Psalm 119, 37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This life given to our souls based on what we set before our eyes. Proverbs 27, 20 uses the analogy of eyes to describe how, how our appetites for earthly things can never be satisfied by those earthly things. Uh, 2720 of Proverbs, uh, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. And so in the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this analogy of the eyes 
in his teaching on lust, saying that, that we, we should take the desires of our eyes very seriously. And a few verses before our text this morning, Matthew 5, 28, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, then tear it out and throw it away. This is a, a serious concern for, for the Lord as he is addressing us in this passage. And it's not just about the things we look at. It speaks to the desires of our hearts as First John 2, that passage about worldliness and not loving the things of this world speaks of the desires of the eyes and the pride of life pulling us away from a love of the Father and directing us to love the world. We we love the things that we look at. We're defined by the desires of our hearts. And and so so the warning for us is there. There's there's an encouragement for us as well. And and this is why uh, verses like Colossians 3.2 gives us an answer for combating the corrupting influences of worldly desires. How, how do we do that? How do we, how do we keep our minds from being corrupted by the things of this world and worldly desires? Well, it says set your minds on, on things above, not on things that are on earth. There, there's a discipline of our minds that is being uh, addressed here. This is not just about the things that we look at, but it's the things that we keep before us. It's the things that we actively think about. It's the things that we long for, the desires that, that we have, the things that we meditate on, the crave. And, and, and this is the, the larger uh, theme in Scripture. So when Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If, if your vision is clear, if the desires in your heart are for the right things, you, that's a path to spiritual health. Your whole body will be full of light. But if those things are bad, oh, that's a path to spiritual darkness. So you're either sanctified or corrupted by what you set before your mind, what you think about. Spiritual health is heavily influenced by the discipline of our mind and our controlling desires. So one of the big ideas is that our obsessions are a window into our soul. What do I mean by that? If if we observe somebody that was spiritually dead, maybe we did an autopsy on a spiritually dead person. Try to determine the cause of their spiritual death. It may not be like one big thing. It may not be like one fatal sin, like a gunshot wound. The the cause of spiritual death could be a thousand small things, which, which, you know, maybe weren't bad of themselves, but sucked the life out of that person. But perhaps the thing pulling us away from God is is not a bad thing in itself, but the constant distractions of, of all the good things that the world has to offer that lure us away from the most important thing that God may call us to be pursuing. Culturally, we're, we're obsessed with causes. 
And it, it, in these things that we're told we should be concerned about uh, permeate common decisions in, in life. I remember back in uh, 2009, we were all obsessing over Whole Foods because its CEO spoke out uh, about Obamacare. In 2012, we started obsessing over Chick-fil-A because of the stances of its founder. You remember the boycott of Chick-fil-A and, and then the reaction to create Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, which I think should be every day. <laughs> I think every day should be Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. It's an expensive hobby, but it's a delicious hobby. I remember going and eating a chicken sandwich for the cause. It was also delicious, but, but it was for the cause. I mean, we can go down the list Target, others, I mean, there, there, there are all of these things that arise and, and, and we feel like an ordinary decision now has, has meaning to it. So my question is, well, what does that say about, about our hearts? I remember those, that time of, of eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich and feeling like I was contributing to something bigger than myself. And... You know, there, there are studies that show that three-fourths of people, according to one study, half of stats are made up, but I'm trusting this one. Um, three, look, a lot of people do, will only do business with somebody that aligns to their values and, and think that groups should be more active in, in promoting their values and the way that they do business. And we can think about Nike, Bud Light, Chick-fil-A, Public Square. It's a group that helps you find businesses that align with your values and, and do business with them. Why, why is that such a strong desire? And, and I get, is there a good desire underneath it? Because sin does a great job taking something good and twisting it into something bad. I think there's a good desire that we all have, that is put there by God, that the mundane decisions that we make should count for something greater than ourselves. That is a good desire. It is a good desire that every day our lives count for something more than what, what is actually in front of us. There's a good desire there, which can be like every good desire in our hearts, corrupted by the influences of sin. But don't diminish the fact that in all of us is this desire that somehow the, the mundane decisions that we make count for something. Colossians is very clear about this. Everyday decisions carry great meaning and value. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, it's not just the big things that you do. It's whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so our desire that even the smallest decisions in life count for something greater is based on this truth that all of life is worship to God. All of life is service 
to Christ, every mundane decision of our lives does count for something greater as it is done as an act of obedience to God, an act of worship to exalt the name of Christ Jesus. That's our cause, to exalt the name of Jesus. And that's the one meaning of our lives. That is the one reason why we are here to glorify Jesus in even the smallest things. They are pleasing to him. They have meaning. They have value because they are things done in obedience to him. They are part of his mission for us as his disciples. There's ways that we bring glory to him, not just in the big things, but in the small things as well. So whether there's a boycott or a boycott going on, it, it doesn't matter. We have the opportunity every day of our lives to live lives of surrender to him, to live lives that have meaning because he is there with us, forming the character of Christ in us and allowing us to serve him and to worship him and honor him. That is our mission and our cause. And it gives some context for us to live and to evaluate the decisions that we make in everyday life. And so those obsessions for us are a window to our soul. What, what are the things that we truly care about? And, and what does that say about us? Because another big idea here is, is the idea of, of fear. So, so often what motivates us is fear of losing something that we love. I said a few weeks ago that the things that we desire preach a message to us about ourselves. And in this a context of cultural engagements, movements, causes, one of the things that can be revealed about ourselves is not just the things that we positively support, but the, but the things that we fear as well. And there's a, an article from a number of years ago in uh, Psychology Today that the, the author uh, told a story about an experience that he had uh, when his house began to catch on fire and how he was, as a child, shoved outside and, and told not to go back inside and just left there out in the cold with his parents saying, don't come back inside under any circumstances and, and just stood out there in the cold crying. And, and, and this was a, a traumatic experience. He was two years old at the time and remembers this vividly as his mother was able somehow to put out the fire. And then uh, as the fire department came, this was all part of this traumatic experience etched in his brain as he wrote the article with the title, Fear is the Most Powerful Motivator. And so that, that's the story he told. And, and he says this, he says, fear is a primal instinct that served us as cave dwellers and still serves us today. It keeps us alive because if we survive a bad experience, we will never forget how to avoid it in the future. Our most vivid memories are born in fear. Adrenaline etches them into our brains. I remember one time when in the middle of the night, the fire alarm went off and just the utter sense of chaos and panic and confusion. Like that's a, that's a memory that you have. It was because of a bad battery. It was no actual fire, but it's that moment of 
just, it's etched in your mind. And the, the author says, nothing makes us more uncomfortable than fear. And we have so many fears. Fear of pain, disease, injury, failure, not being accepted, missing an opportunity, being scammed, to name a few. Fear invokes the, the fight or flight system. And our first reaction is to often flee back to our comfort zone. If we don't know the way back, we are likely to follow whoever shows us a path. And, and this is what people who are, who are marketers are brilliant at this. Politicians are brilliant at this. Anybody who wants to sell you something is brilliant at identifying a fear and then a really good solution <laughs> that only they can provide for, for your way back out of your position of fear, back to your comfort zone. Begin to look at advertising from that perspective. What fear are they addressing? And then what comfort zone are they offering me a path back to? Well, one of the things that we fear as it pertains to our engagement in, in the world around us, civics and, and culturally in, in general, is this, is this fear that some irreversible damage will be done. You may have heard, may have heard, that this next election is the most important one of your lifetime. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> Yes, it is the most important one ever. And it's just like all the other ones, the most important one ever. You know, the, if, if, if this doesn't go the way that we want it to, some irreversible damage will be done that we can never recover from. If the people on the other side get in charge, they're going to do so much harm that our country won't even be recognizable anymore. Have you ever heard that? that that's the, that's the fear-mongering that, that people will engage in. I've now been alive for, for 10 of the most important elections in my lifetime. They're every four years, and I'm 40, so it's, I'm guessing, been about 10. Look, without downplaying the importance of good leadership and good laws and, and these things, we... we I, I'm talking to a group of people that I assume understand that. <laughs> um, and so if I felt like you were a group that needed to understand the importance of good leaders and good laws, then I may talk about that. Um, but what I found in my own heart is a need for discernment and, and to recognize legitimate concerns from the hype. Personally, I, and this is because I do actually have fears. Um, and if I can just talk candidly for a moment, the, the fears are there. I, one of the things I am concerned about is uh, ever since Roe v. Wade uh, happened, there have been a number of states that have passed some laws that are legalizing certain things in those states that I believe are immoral and wrong. And there could potentially be uh, the opportunity to do that here in Florida. And so that's, that's one thing that, that I am fearful of is, 
<laughs> people that are not thinking along the same lines that I'm thinking, not, not valuing what I value, making decisions that are going to have an impact on our state for, for many years to come and, and on issues that I feel are very clear issues scripturally, issues of life and protecting unborn victims. I, it's, it's a fear, and if I can speak candidly to that. And, and so in order to address that fear, it's because I want to do business with the Lord on that, that, that I have to have discernment to understand, okay, what are things that are actually truly issues of concern? And, and what is, as I said a minute ago, just, just the hype and, and, and the, the, uh, the, the fear-mongering, as, as we would say. And, and having that discernment is, is what we're called to as believers, to engage with the Lord on these issues of concern and ultimately to put our trust in the Lord, in our sovereign God, who's, who's proven, hasn't he, over the course of human history to, to be able to still get his work done, even when the leadership at times has not been ideal and the laws at times have not been perfect. Has that ever stopped the gospel from going forward? It, look, there are impacts that it can have, but ultimately we trust God and his power to work in every circumstance regardless of what uh, human rulers and kingdoms may be aligning themselves as opposition. There, there is no opposition to the gospel. Jesus Christ is the ruler, regardless of how our rulers are acting at any given moment. And it's because we serve God that there is actually no such thing as irreversible damage. Sin entered the world. The creation in Eden was one of sinless perfection and fellowship, unbroken fellowship between man and God, daily communion in the garden. Sin corrupted that. Sin made mankind a, a rebellious group that had created warfare against God and his purposes. Okay, that, that corruption of humanity is a lot worse than anything that could happen in this next election. That, that, that was a real down point, a downturn that, that is far worse than anything that has happened since. So, so as bad as we're thinking the future may be, the, the consequences uh, of it are not, are not as bad as humanity losing paradise, being removed from the Garden of Eden. And even that damage was not irreversible. There's no irreversible damage because we serve God. And God, in his word, has promised that he is in the process of redeeming mankind through the work of Jesus Christ to save us. He is destroying sin and restoring what sin destroyed. Therefore, nothing can happen that cannot be restored and redeemed by our God who has promised to work all things together for the good of those of us who are called according to his purpose in Romans 8, 28. So we have confidence instead of fear. We have confidence that says with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
And this is why we can not fall prey to the slick marketers and movements and people who try to sell us their solution for bringing us out of our fear, back to our comfort zone. Because we can actually be comfortable even in the most dangerous places. We, we can say with the psalmist that even though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. So let's together do, do what I have to do, which is in those moments of, of fear to turn my attention to a sovereign God who I know is with me and drawing comfort from him, not from a perceived outcome that I think would be desirable, even, even as we fight for those things which are true and, and godly, even as we engage, we can do so not out of fear, but out of an opportunity that God has given us to incarnate the love of Christ and to work for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ to be reflected in every area of our lives. And, and this is a way to kind of tie this back together. The, the main idea is the main question is not just what, what do our hearts love, but where are our eyes looking? The, the, the idea here of this passage is that, that we should focus our vision on the main thing. If our eyes are a window to our soul, if we're defined by what we look at. Well, one of the ways that this passage will serve us this year is by drawing our attention back, thinking about what we're gazing at, who we're placing our hope in. I remember a famous passage by, sorry, famous message uh, by C.J. Mahaney that we should keep the main thing the main thing. And he said it like 47 times because I counted the number of times that he said that. I forget the number, but it was a large number. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And this became a foundation for the book that he wrote called The Cross-Centered Life. It's a helpful reminder that our vision should remain focused on the eternal truth of what Jesus accomplished for us. This is one of the things that he said. He said, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be. If our eyes are the lamp of our body, it's the gospel that should fill the gaze of our eyes. That is my words, not CJ's. I ended reading the quote, by the way. But the point is, clear. If our passions define 
the spiritual state of our souls, then it's the gospel that we should be passionate about. There's a very helpful book, if you can go read it on this topic, by Wayne Grudem. It's very thick and very full of helpful resources. And, and, and it talks about some of these cultural issues and, and biblical perspectives on them. But it also talks about this issue of, of how should we participate as believers in these things as the opportunities come up. And he, in a typical Wayne Grudem style, kind of says, well, this is what this person thinks, and this is what this person thinks, and they're both wrong, and this is what I think. You know, so he doesn't quite say it that way, but that's effectively what he does in a way that is just help, helpful to engage with. And, and he quotes John MacArthur, who he doesn't fully agree with, but I actually think this quote is helpful. John MacArthur says, if, if we ever begin to think that good laws alone will solve a nation's problems or bring about a righteous and just society, we will have made a huge mistake. Unless there is simultaneously an interchange in people's hearts and minds, good laws alone will only bring about grudging external compliance with the minimum level of obedience necessary to avoid punishment. And that's a helpful reminder that, that what we need is a work of God in our hearts. What we need is for God to do what only he can do. It, it, man can change laws, but, but God can change the heart. And, and, and Mr. Grudem was, was helpful in this and, and, and uh, putting forward, uh, which I recommend for your reading, some, some positive ways to think about involvement and engagement. But, but unless we're missing the, the point here, he, he also then quotes uh, Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson from years ago during the days of the moral majority and the kind of rise of the religious right. These two gentlemen had a very prophetic warning. But we who are Christians are deluded if we think we will change our culture solely through political power. That, that was something said at the height of political power by religious conservatives. There was this warning that this isn't the change that we ultimately need. If our goal is to draw people to Christ, these things can be helpful, but they are not in themselves the gospel. And in the heart of my concern as, as I as we bring it to, to a close, if Josiah, if you can come up and play on the piano. The, the, the heart of my concern is that there are a thousand different things that we are told to be passionate about, but there is actually only one thing that is the most important thing that we should truly care about above all other things. And that is why we are here is to preach and proclaim the gospel. That is not to diminish the importance of involvement in some of these other things and the opportunities that God gives us to engage in those things as a means of sharing the gospel. They are not ends in themselves. They are opportunities that we have to engage with people who need the gospel as an open door to sharing the gospel. Because let's, let's remember where our hope is. Our hope is not in any earthly thing. 
Our hope is in our future with Christ in heaven. Our hope is not in the the advancement of some earthly cause, but the unstoppable force of the gospel going forward by the power of God as we are faithfully proclaiming it through the Holy Spirit softening people's hearts and helping us to faithfully respond and to share his message with those who need it. The message people need is not a message that, that the world has to offer. It's a message that, that Christ has died for their sins and gives them the opportunity to become not, not members of some earthly group, but sons and daughters of God. That's our hope. That's our message. That's our obsession. That's our gaze of our eyes. That's what the lamp of our body, the eye, should be looking at, producing in our hearts the, the fuel spiritually that we need to faithfully, boldly, and courageously serve Him and give a faithful testimony of who He is and what He has done.